Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about people who on the surface appear to be totally ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Starting in August of 2021, Sarah Smeltzer-Wright teaches drama and puts on the plays at St. James Academy. William Wright, her husband, teaches social studies and puts on the plays at St. Michael the Archangel High School. They married in 2018? Yeah, good job. Okay, okay. Their podcast, they have a podcast, is called The Playwrights. Today, we are going to discuss their lives, why they got into theater, what their philosophy of good dramas, comedies, and musicals are, and what their podcast is all about. Hey, William and Sarah. Hi. Hi. Oh my gosh, it's so good to be here. That intro is great. Yeah, it's, yeah, we're super excited. Yeah, thank you for having us. Awesome. Well, just tell me a little bit about yourselves, um, Sarah. Yeah, awesome. Well, I am actually um, from around here, um, from Overland Park. I grew up and I went to St. James Academy, where actually Tim Webker was, you know, not one of my, I don't think I was ever in one of your classes, but... We were friends. We had a good time. Yeah. <laughs> I knew we all of your... Bro- I knew yes. most of your brothers and sisters. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have five brothers and one sister, and they're the best. I absolutely love my big fam. Um, but then I went to Benedictine College, and that's where Will and I met, and we did theater together there, and I also did journalism and mass communications while I was there. And then um, a year later, after I graduated, we got married and moved to Savannah, where I got my master's at Savannah College of Art and Design. Uh, in performing arts. So it's been kind of a wild ride. Now we're back and I'm excited yeah. to be here. Yeah. 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 Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, well, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I also went to Benedictine College uh, and got my degree as friend with Sarah, obviously, and got, got my degree in secondary education, social studies, and then minored in theater. Um, I then taught for two years in Omaha and as well as like directed their theater department up in Omaha, of course, taught for a little bit in Savannah while we were there, and, uh, yeah, just kind of, I've, just, I've been doing theater a long time since, you know, I guess, middle school, I guess, um, and, uh, yeah, that's kind of, that's a big part of, like, who I am, and it's a big reason why Sarah and I are together, I think, um, and, yeah, just taught, just finished my first year at St. Michael the Archangel, and absolutely love it, great school, new, a little bit newer school, and uh, it's a... Uh, yeah, it's been a great time there so far, so... Okay. Yeah. Uh, something I always like to know about people is what kind of a kid were you? Mm. I just always wonder, yeah. how did that carry through into adulthood, or did it carry through into adulthood? There, yeah. is, a, there is a home video of me. Um, <laughs> while while my, two, my two older sisters are kind of dancing around crazy in the living room, it is... I think it's Christmas Eve. I'm probably three. And they're dancing around crazy in the living room, and I'm, like, hiding under the piano. And my mom pans over to me, and she's like, Will, can you, like, tell me the story of Christmas? And I, like, kind of, like, I, like, in the the smallest voice possible, I, like, tell, I guess, I tell a a three-year-old's version of the story of Christmas. (laughs) And uh, I think that, that was kind of me in a nutshell. I was kind of, like, always, like, you know, kind of shying away from the limelight. I was a pretty good kid. You know, didn't get in any trouble really. Uh, uh, not till later. And, um, Eagle Scout. I, yeah, yeah. I was an Eagle Scout. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, kind of carried that forward, I guess. But never, I, I was never making trouble. But I was, I, I always tried to surround myself with really good people. Okay, so you had to get dragged into the limelight. Yes. I, 
I started to do theater because I felt like I was needed. I think really, as, yeah. I, as a, as a as a boy in theater, I felt there was oh, uh, I felt like like there there's a spot where I could be appreciated. Okay, there's know? the massive shortage of guys yes, in a lot of theater. Definitely at my school, even in big schools. Younger, yeah, you know, like yeah. younger grades and yeah. high school. I, I like a medium sized school, you know, yeah. um, but there was a pretty big shortage of men, and I was just like, I was just like, well, you know, they'll want me there. You know, and I was kind of, I'm a middle child, so I was like, sure. And then... Cooperative. Was, exactly. Yeah. Turned out I was pretty good at it, and so here we are, you know? Oh, okay. Okay, childhood really did carry through. Yeah. Sarah? We love, we love that. Yeah. Um, what kind so, of little girl were you? See, I was like, so I'm the, you know, like I said, kind of bigger family and the second oldest. So I was very much like people pleaser, mom's assistant type of vibe. Like I was like the second mom, I was totally on everyone, but I also was like doing everything to like get my parents' praise and approval because there's six other people you're competing with, right? Right. So like, how do you get that attention? Right. Um, so what I, I want to know is, does one of the kids just give up and just say, <laughs> oh, the, the hell with it. Sarah's got all no. the approval. <laughs> no. I'm just done. No, I feel like all of us in some ways are like, oh, but look at me. I'm doing, you know, like, I feel like all of us got a little bit of a fight in us. You can tell through the group <laughs> chat. <laughs> just kidding. Definitely. Sitting at the, sitting at the dinner table with... Every single smelter is it's a lot. It's there, yeah. there's a lot of people vying for the the the, the I don't know control of the conversation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're all pretty much like extroverts, kind of around each other. But um, so that was kind of I think what led into this stage. I actually started when I was like nine. I did mostly musicals, like all um, I guess before college. Uh, but yeah, so I think I was just, I was looking for that limelight. I was looking for ways. I wasn't very coordinated, so sports weren't really working out. So I was like, I could succeed in theater and I could get maybe some praise. I could sing like my dad. I could, you know, and my mom was such like a stage mom. So I was like, it makes her happy. Uh, <laughs> and I kind of just went, kept going with it. Um, so yeah, I think, and I think that's where like in adulthood, it kind of has carried through where I've had to like actively make choices being like. Am I doing this to people please or am I doing this because I actually want to do it? Oh, you know? like, it kind of becomes a big question. Right, right. I think that's like a huge question kind of in my life that is carried forward from my youth. Well, that's that's pretty profound actually. That's to, to wonder that. <laughs> yeah. Is this, and, yeah, am I doing this because pe- is this is what people expect of me? Yeah. Or is, just, is it because I actually like it? Yeah. Well, then there's the extra complication of um, I do like making other people happy. Right. So if I do this ridiculously complicated thing that's physically painful, yeah. then maybe that's good because right. I'm making other people happy. Exactly. So, exactly. Or am I putting too much like expectation on myself? even even though they don't really you know yeah they don't even care maybe <laughs> yeah they they could just be completely oblivious right just like, give them a bag give then, them a bag of yeah. cheetos and a couch and they're exactly. good <laughs> they're good so yeah. Complicated. <laughs> yeah exactly okay so just for fun uh sarah i'd like to start with you on this one amazing is there something really quirky about you that your husband just never guessed <laughs> In all the time that you were dating and engaged, and then he was delightfully surprised with it after you got married. He's um, like, oh, you do this. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Um, so I think, what's a quirky thing about me? You know, I was actually thinking about this earlier today. We actually talked recently about what, what drives us crazy about the other person. 
So I get very terrified of like nighttime. I oh, have yeah. since I was like very, very little. Um, like one time when I was a kid, uh, they were like, you know, the creases on your blanket. I thought they were snakes when oh. I was like eight. And okay. I was like shrieking and I was terrified. And my parents come running up the stairs because I think I'm getting like murdered or something. And then I was just like, there's snakes on my bed. And my parents are like, where are you crazy person? You yeah, know? Yeah. Um, but it just like periodically throughout my life, stuff like that's happened. And so I will loves it because now I still kind of get moments like that. And so I'll wake him up and I'll be like, I hear something downstairs. And it's like three 30 in the morning. And he's like barely conscious from his sleep. And I know in my heart, I'm like, I know there's nothing downstairs. I'm going to go check anyway because I have to. Because you have to. Because I can't sleep. (laughs) <laughs> for the rest of the night if I don't know you know if someone doesn't go down there and I'm not going down there so yeah that's probably my like quirkiest weirdest annoying part about me I think sure yeah but I, I guess that childhood imagination carried forward into adulthood makes for good theater <laughs> that was a positive spin <laughs> yeah absolutely well you could just crush the imagination yeah. out of you Will wouldn't want that no no never. of course he not go downstairs and check yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, he yeah. loves the because yeah, it encourages. And then and then there's a part of me that I'm like, well, what if there is someone down there who's like going to rob us? I can't stop that. I, I don't like, I don't have a bat in my hand. Sorry, uh, you just take whatever you want. Just leave us alone, man. <laughs> yeah. Could you come back at eight a.m.? We're trying to yeah, sleep. We're trying to sleep. Yeah. I'll give you whatever you want. Like honestly, like, whatever. If you want it that bad. Okay. Okay. Will, same question directed at you. Yeah, you know, I was looking through these questions and I, I really blanked on this one. And I was like, I really tried to find something that I was like, ooh, what is, what is, what did Sarah not know about me before? I think we found out a lot of things uh, while we were engaged. Uh, I think like we tried to direct a, we, tr- we, no, we tried. We, we did. We did. We did direct two full shows together. Mm. An award-winning uh, musical. Yeah. Well, Won we, the Nebraska we, High yeah, School Theater Award. Yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah. So we got we, we got pretty good at it by the second time. Yeah. Uh, the first time we directed a play together, I think it was a big uh, battle of like, con- like there was like some control issues of like, okay, who's really in charge here? Okay. Who's making the final decision? I think that was uh, a really a really good experience for us because I think we've never had to do like that kind of big project together. Um, so it was a little bit hard for me to kind of cede control, I think to Sarah sometimes because I had already been at that school for a year. I had already directed three shows by myself the previous year. And then all of a sudden I've got to co-direct with someone and I've got to give up some, some things to to her or trust. Uh, to, to trust yes. her to make the right <laughs> choices that the audience is going to make so I think that was like a really big uh, uh, learning experience yeah. okay and I think you wow. in teacher yeah. mode I was definitely yeah, oh, I was yeah. not used to yeah you were not used to me in teacher mode yeah that's true because I do I do I don't like I don't know if I like put on a show for my kids but you're much more I'm, like serious. And I'm a little more serious. I'm a little more direct. Yeah. Uh, when I try to, when I'm directing for sure. Yeah. So, I don't know. Okay. And we'll, we'll get into philosophy of directing oh, yeah. more as we go, because I'm very interested in this topic. I've never directed a show. Uh, I wrote three plays in my twenties. So I'm just very interested to know I how do that. people actually <laughs> direct these things. I just think yeah. that's great. Yeah. Okay. So, 
You've already partially answered, I think, this question, but maybe just to round it out, finish it up. Why did you both get into theater in the first place? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, because I had kind of mentioned that I did musicals, but it was more of just like a passive choice at that point because all my friends did it, whatever. I was having a good time. It would end when school, when high school was done and I would do something serious in college. Um, that's what I always so I started going into college being like, I'm going to major in psychology. So that's what I did. And then I was like, oh, I'll just do theater on the side just to help them out. I'm sure they just need help. You know, theater always needs help. So I go there and I am um, supposed to be like, I don't know, costume dresser or something of the show called Come Back Little Sheba. And um, it's a show where a huge theme of it is alcoholism. Okay. And um, just like through, you know, different people in my life, like, I've had to, like, deal with that, or seeing the effects that it can have on people, and I sat there watching this play, and I was just, like, weeping at the end, because I realized, like, how much, like, that impacted me, and how much, like, I felt seen in my own experience through what I was watching, that was kind of, like, the first time in my life that that something like that's happened. Okay. So it was, like, a very, like, magical experience for me, where it's, like, I want to impact the world through this medium. And I think this is like one of the more powerful ones because it's live, It's you're in the same room. This moment is like ethereal. Like, I don't know, there's something about life theater like it'll never happen again twice. And that's like special and it's beautiful and it's sad at the same time, but it's magic, I think. So from that point on, I just had the bug and I couldn't give it up. So I became a theater major soon after and here we are. Wow. <laughs> wow, there's so many aspects to that story. I mean, it's, it's both... You're helping people, but at the same time, you were personally deeply affected. There, there's just so many aspects. That's really amazing. Thank you. Well, well, I first, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I what again. What I first, what first attracted me was there. I was filling a need. I felt like, but I, I remember watching my sisters perform on stage in their high school, and I was like, I was like, this is fun. Like this is this is cool. Like this is what I want to do. So I wanted, to, and part of it, I wanted to be like them. Um, so I attribute a lot of that. And then, like, again, like, when I got to college, I was kind of, I didn't know what my major was going to be in college. I didn't know that I was going to do theater for all four years of college. I, was, I auditioned for the first show, and I was just like, yeah, I'll just see what's, you know, what, what, do, they, what do they know, you know? Um, and I ended up really liking it and really liking the people there. And, again, like, I saw the need of, like, I really want to, like, build a community with the people who were in that department. Um, and I think that is a big part of what attracts me to theater is that it does provide a beautiful, like, I don't know, sense of fellowship with your cast and your crew and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's where I kind of ended up on it. And I was just like, cool, I'm going to, I, I only minored in theater, but you know, it was a pretty, pretty active uh, <laughs> minor in theater and uh, yeah I just I just really liked the the, the relationships that it, that it formed well if neither of you majored in theater did you, you oh I you, majored you majored yeah. and you majored in psychology oh no so I double majored in theater and journalism and mass communication oh my gosh so I said, yeah. that's a lot yeah. okay and then what were all of your degrees again I have a bachelor's in secondary education and social studies gotcha gotcha well so 
you guys definitely have made up for any lost time in case you missed a theater <laughs> class here yeah. and there. You've just done so much. You covered you know? both of it. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Just amazing. Okay. So do you remember every play that you've ever been in um, and or directed? Yes. Yes. I think I could, post, I would yeah. say post like college, I will, I don't know if I remember the name of every play I was in in high school. Oh, did you do some weird ones? Well, okay, the one that sticks out, I did a play called Quest for Quasi. <laughs> like Quasimodo? Yeah, I don't know, it was like this fairy tale, like wild, I don't know, um, but I was a fairy in it. And cool. I don't, but I did this really cool one act, I forget the name, but it was kind of beautiful in Russian, I wish I could remember. Dang. But yeah. So, but past in college on, and of course, I think any show you direct, I almost feel a little more, um, you give so much when you're directing, you're in charge of so many aspects and you give so much of yourself in it. Uh, I almost remember those a little more clearly than I do the ones I act in. Okay. Yeah. I almost remember like big events in my life. Sometimes I like, I'm like, oh yeah, that was when I was in this show or that was just mm. after... Uh, we finished this show. So I kind of like almost segment my life into what show was I working on? Yeah. Um, or what show had I just finished? Um, so the, yeah, the, my timeline of my life is very, linked. is very linked to the shows I do. So yeah. I'm almost always thinking about like, gotcha. So like a major life event in your life gets tied to whichever show you were producing at the time. Yeah. 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 So yeah. do you remember? I guess I'm going to try to put you on the spot, but only once. Do you remember which show you were directing or participating in when you first met Sarah? I was, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, well, it was Come Back Little Sheba. Because I was, was in, in it. it. I was in that. But okay. I would say, I would argue uh, I was, Our Town Our Town was, was the show after that. Yeah. And, uh, that we were and that's when we started, started to become friends, I think, in Our Town. Yeah. Well, no, I, you didn't Come Back Little Sheba. Yeah, by, the end of it. It. by the end of it, we were yeah. friends. Yeah, so. For sure. But no, those two shows, I mean, yeah, it was just very, you know, there was, there was very few men in the department. Well, it was very, like, confident guy just doing his job on stage. And I was like, wow, I respect that. <laughs> I see you. Yeah. And actually, I, I told this story on our podcast, but I... So Will, like, never asked for my number, if you will. Like, I got it off of the call sheet <laughs> for the show. And then I, you called him up? Well, right. I mean, I was a freshman. I didn't know that many people, and I was working on our town, and the door was locked. And I thought he might be called for rehearsal that night, and I didn't recognize anyone else on the list. And I was like, this guy's in a class with me. We were in stagecraft together. Yeah. Hopefully he'll answer. And so that's literally how we had each other's numbers. Yep, that's okay. how I saved your number. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. A, that's a 21st century romance. Yeah, right there. Small Catholic college. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, this sort of leads me into the next thing that I just wanted to have you both do, which was just tell me a story. Each of you, yeah. like, maybe just tell me a story about either plays or acting or just life. Great. Do you want to go first? No, no. you go. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, this happened to us uh, relatively recently. Anybody remember the uh, 2020 election? Um, it was a little contentious, um, and it was a little wild. Um, what we did was we had just moved from Savannah, Georgia. Uh, we moved here back in, I don't know, last summer, summer 2020. Um, and we had not yet registered to vote in the state of Kansas. And so we thought, we're like, well, we'll just vote 
we'll just do a mail-in ballot in Georgia. We still have our Georgia license. We still have our Georgia license. We're my my car well. was still still to this day has a Georgia license plate. <laughs> we were like, cool. We don't have a residency there, but and I I want to admit that I, I I'm not admitting any wrongdoing here. I'm just going to say, <laughs> please. There are if, no facts. I have several there friends are. who are lawyers. <laughs> if you need. Well, we've already talked to the lawyers, actually. So, oh, for uh, sure. Oh, my gosh. So um, we did we did that. We did mail-in a ballot in Georgia. Okay. And, the, and the website let us do it. I want to make that very clear. And then we vote. Great. Whatever. Don't hear anything until, I guess, what was it? February, mm-hmm. maybe? We get a thing in the mail. It's literally from the Secretary of State of Georgia, the guy who had been on the news. Uh-huh. Uh, I forget his name. Ratzenberger, maybe. No? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. 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 And the letter was like, we have on record that you uh, were not a resident of Georgia. We don't think you were a resident of Georgia, and you mail and you mailed in a ballot for Georgia. How do you explain this? Basically? Yeah, and you're like, I'm you're moving like, to North you're Korea. Like, you're like, oh <laughs> yeah, we're going to jail. Um, and it gave us this like questionnaire, like, how do you? Basically, like it was asking the question, like, how, how do you uh, justify voting in Georgia? And so we had to. My my, I talked to my dad. He's a lawyer. And we even got a lawyer on the phone from Atlanta. Um, kind who of like, knows? Who, he knows. <laughs> no, yeah, he knew, like, I don't know, she was on some lady on the Board of Elections or something yeah. like that. So we were like, maybe we could just, like, get it. Maybe Wait. it waved a magic wand or whatever. Somebody could make it disappear. Um, but then we were also like, well, if we bring all the, if we, like, lawyer up, you know, then, then they're going to, that's going to attract a lot of attention. So we ended up filling out the questionnaire. We just filled it out honestly. We said like, hey, we moved to Georgia. Yeah, it was a hectic time. We moved back. We had just moved to Kansas. Still had the Georgia license. Didn't know how long we'd be there. Saw the Georgia license plate and license, you know, and and then a couple months. We sent that in a couple months later. They were like, ah, fine, whatever. Yeah, they sent an email. They're like, (laughs) but for you're good. Just don't vote in Georgia. Yeah, just don't vote in Georgia again, right? Uh, Don't come back to our state. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Don't eat any peaches. It was, yeah. it was pretty touch and go there for a little bit. I was like, am I going to go to federal prison for like 20 we years? We literally like, Googled like, what is the jail time for voter fraud? And we came up, there's this one woman who like frauded like, I don't know, 2,000 votes. And she only went to prison for like, I don't know, six months. And so I was like, ours were just two. It was ours just was basically two, an if, if that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so there's hope. Um, I no. thought that was funny that I did that as a as a government, government teacher. teacher. I was like, I'm probably just not supposed to do that kind yeah. of stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so missed yeah. that page in the yeah. textbook. Yeah. My bad, my bad. <laughs> yeah, that was wild. Yeah, that was a wild time. Yeah, it's been kind of. A, I was. I have a story um, about just kind of fraud, but in like the I don't know the theater, the film theater world. world. Yeah. Okay. Um, which actually also happened this year. It's just been a wild year. Um, so I had, so my friend sent me this audition for this movie. Um, and it was on like three different audition pages. And in the film scene, like you find them online, you know, or you have your agent. But if you're doing it, you know, for free sometimes, like they're just on the web. So I, you memorize this uh, scene or this monologue, I sent it in and I was like, great, it's shooting in Paris in May. That sounds amazing. Oh my gosh, what if I get it? Probably won't, but whatever. So they had me do a callback and I was like, oh my gosh, I was freaking out. I was so excited. And then I did the callback and then they were like, your audition's been well received. We really like you. Um, We're going to, we want to cast you in our movie. And I was like, 
oh my gosh, Paris for a month shooting a film, pinch me. I'm dream like I was so over the moon. And then they referred me to like the guy who was handling the contract, the money. And um, he sent me this contract that looked like a fifth grader put it together, um, where it was just like pixel art and like just very sketchy and weird. And so, and I literally had like my professors from uh, Savannah College of Art and Design like look through it and like, am I crazy? Like, is this fake? Is this like, a real yeah, movie even? Yeah. Like, am I, is this unsafe? Like what's happened? Like, I don't want to just fly overseas during COVID of like what? And the, and the, well, the film production company. Yeah. It's real. Has a, it's real. Like they have an Instagram. Right. We saw like bits of their films. Like yeah. they're real. Yeah. So we tried to do as much research as we could before like kind of asking, we did ask some lawyer, entertainment lawyers in this case. And we were talking to a lot of lawyers around this we were, time. It we was were. wild. Yeah. This, these uh, were both <laughs> happening like at the same time. <laughs> or like one right after the other. It was, I, it was, I don't was, know. Yeah. I feel like my podcast is going to get deplatformed after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> These two crazies came on. It's talking about fraud. Um, but so once I got this contract, I never signed it or anything because I was just like, it, it just also felt crazy that someone would write up a script, fake the whole production company, all this stuff. But then like the contract, I mean, it wasn't real. Like anyone we showed it to that was just like, it doesn't even make sense. There's two locations. They're saying it's in France, but really they're doing it from Portugal. Like what is happening? Are, are they asking for money? That, no. no they that, was were the gonna, that was what we couldn't figure out. Because they never asked me for money. They were just like, right. here's how much we'll pay you. And yeah. so I was like, great. Well, but then it's like, okay, how are they going to pay me? Are they asked for my bank information? Mm. Are they going to give this to me? And then it's like a trafficking sort of situation. Right. Like, yeah. you know, all of these kinds right. of Right. Are they going to kidnap you or right. are they going to do something? Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I decided not to go through with it, but I, you know, all of this for a warning of just like, that's what the hard thing is kind of about like our world is because sometimes you, you try to do, you put yourself out there and then people, stuff like that happens. People or, take advantage of those people who are right. kind of, they, they really want something. Right. Right. Because right. they know like you really want this. So they're willing to like take advantage of that. Design. Oh, good point. Um, good point. So I read a book on con artists. It was called The Confidence Game by Ooh. a Russian PhD. Her name is Maria Konnikova. And people thought it was the best book on con artists since roughly 1946. Wow. And I thought it was really good. And she had a number of statements which really surprised me. One was one of her general premises is, is that 100% of the population on Earth gets conned at some point or another in their lives. Everybody gets conned. It doesn't matter how smart yeah. you are or how wise you are or how cynical you are or skeptical. It just doesn't make any difference. You've been conned. That's one of her premises. Then her second premise I thought was super interesting. She said she knew what type of person gets conned. And mm -hmm. I was wondering, oh my gosh, well, what type of person? I wonder if I bet I'm that type of person. <laughs> yeah. This would be terrible. And uh, it turns out that it wasn't guys and it wasn't girls mm -hmm. and it wasn't people of any particular race and it wasn't people of any particular age or a number of IQ points or religion or no religion or anything like that. The number one factor was, how desperate are you? Mm. So unfortunately, people who are kind of down and out, if life has kicked them in the shins, that's exactly the person who's going to get right. conned. She gave this example of this Nobel Prize winning 
physicist who was 65 years old and this beautiful 25-year-old Russian wonderful lady wrote him and said, you know, I've just always had a thing for physics and I've always had a thing for physicists and you just seem absolutely amazing to me and I think that we should get in touch. Long story short, she was probably some guy named Fred and yeah. she just absolutely cleaned out his bank account, absolutely cleaned it out. And people wondered, well, how could he possibly fall for a scam like this? I mean, he's world famous 65, so he should be wise, and he's, you know, a nuclear physicist. How could he possibly fall for this? Well, he was a lonely old man. Yeah. It was just really that simple. I mean, the poor guy was desperate. So, I mean, that was kind of the example is that, hey, if you've been bankrupted recently, that's right about the time that the financial scammers are going to show up mm -hmm. and clean out whatever just might be left. Right. So that's that's just, or if you've been romantically had your heart broken, that's probably about the time you're going to get the email from, I don't know, some guy named Rex, you know, yeah. just pretending to be a Russian beauty or something. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah, no, I totally believe that. And I think that's what, and especially like, there's a lot of things like that in the theater world because people want it so bad. You want it or, so bad. Yeah, they want that like career so bad. They're willing to do just about anything, but then that's what they know that. You know, mm -hmm. so I guess it's more of like a warning. Luckily, I didn't fall for it because I have amazing people in my life that are like Sarah. <laughs> like I know it's your dream to go to Paris, but come on. <laughs> um, let's see, read the contract. But yeah, I guess the details really are perfect. Act in Paris. I mean, who would not want to be in Paris? Right. right. Like give yeah. me a break. In so May? great. Come so on. great. So Try great. Like a whole month. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's kind of get into your podcast and also just your your theories of things. Um, what place has your podcast discussed so far? Sure. So we run a podcast called The Playwrights, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, and our first, or we started this a year ago. Mm -hmm. Kind of done it on and off since then, you know, yeah. episodes here and there. We started in quarantine because yes. we were... Um, Bored? Yeah. <laughs> yes, but also, you know, I was finishing up grad school. I mean, my last three months were at home right. and where I had for the past year and a half been constantly doing theater like every day working on the craft and I was just like oh my gosh Will I don't want to lose that like right. I miss those creative conversations I miss that what can we do and so that's kind of where it stemmed from where we just wanted to still be on our game still finding a reason to read new plays and discuss them with each other because we really enjoy doing that like as a couple yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah that's kind of where it all started we have covered, um, you know, the classics of... Gosh, well, our first, well, I kind of think of them in order. I'm like, I'm like we started it. with The Humans mm -hmm. by Stephen, Stephen Karam, a Tony Award-winning play uh, from the last few years. Um, we did, what is it? Uh, Betrayal mm -hmm. Harold by Harold Pinter, Pinter. Mm. who's a classic. Um, yeah, more of, a, more of a modern classic, I would say. We've done some, uh, we did another one called uh, Gruesome Playground Injuries. By Rajiv Joseph. Yeah, that's what you directed. Yeah. Um, so it's nice we'd like to bring, um, so during COVID, sometimes we'd bring my friends over and kind of be a distance away. But um, like my friend Claire and I directed uh, Gruesome Playground Injuries with 
we did it together. And yeah. so it was fun to talk about that on our podcast where we yeah. could talk as directors. We had my friend Gaines on, yeah. um, and he, he wanted did. to cover True West by Sam Shepard because yeah. that's just one of his favorites. Um, so, I reread that recently. Yeah. 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 It's really good. Yeah. Um, so that was fun to kind of just like get into it. Then. So it also kind of created this like outlet for our friends and for us to kind of just actively talk about a play together for yeah. over an hour and just like get into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of I, I directed a play <laughs> in the fall called Radium Girls. And so we brought on my assistant director for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just, our most recent episode is Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Um, we've done... Like Cat on Hudson Roof is, I guess, an American classic that we yeah. did. August Osage uh, County. Yeah. So we try to, we've, we've mostly, most of what we've done is 21st century plays, but yeah. we've done a few um, really old plays, yeah. Shakespeare-ish, and then I would say a few in the, in the, in the mid 20th century. Yeah. I would say kind of half classics, half more modern pieces people might not have heard of. Um, but yeah, I, it's fun and it. You know, sometimes we do plays that we've read, but sometimes we do new plays. And I don't know if I have a preference. Sometimes I almost like going into plays I've already read because then I can kind of look at it through a new lens or kind of think about what I was like when I first read it and what I think now. You know, that's fun to answer. Oh, I love that. I just love that. Well, because I'll just give you an example from literature, I guess, uh, from novels. Mm -hmm. But they always say Huck Finn, if you read Huck Finn when you were 10 years old, it's a boy's adventure story. Is what it is. And then if you read it when you were 20 years old or a little older, it's a social commentary. And you miss all of that completely when you're 10. When you're 10, you're you're seeing escapes and people floating down the river and people after other people and you see the comedy and things like that. Then when you're 20 and a little bit older, there's this profound commentary on human psychology that's going on. And so it just becomes two different books. Exactly. Right. It's kind of like the movie The Sixth Sense or like Bike Club, where if you see them twice, they just The Sixth Sense, I don't want to do any spoilers for people, <laughs> but if you see that movie the first time through, it's one movie. And then mm-hmm. if you see it on a different day after that, it is a completely different movie. And mm-hmm. I, I just love that about yeah. it. Yeah. Just absolutely love the fact that it just rewards right. an, yeah. extra, an extra reading or viewing. Yeah, exactly. And especially with like, you know, especially with the Romeo and Juliet, like you start reading that freshman year of high school and you're like, why are we reading this? It's so long and boring and we're reading this out loud in class and none of it makes sense because it's told in Shakespeare's language and what, you know, like, oh, right. I can't even understand. And then it's just, you read it so many times, especially like when you're studying theater or, or you do scenes from it in class. And so you're constantly reworking it. And I think that's something, what makes Shakespeare so great is because you get something new out of it like every single time based on like who you are. And it's just because of like the poetic language, especially. So oh, for I sure. Totally, for yeah, sure. I'm totally with you on that. Where It's cool. And it's fun to just think about your life in place. Like you kind of said. Yeah, it's and like, it's great to hear um, other people talk about a play that they have acted in and a mm-hmm. play that they've directed. Maybe you've only read the play. Right. Um, but then you talk to someone who acted in it and it's like, whoa, like, okay, yeah. that's a, that's something I never thought about because you inhabited this character for, you know, a month or two mm-hmm. and you, you put yourself in their shoes. Whereas a reader, you're not, you're, you're kind of doing that. You not, might not identify with the same character that the actor is playing, but you might yeah. not. You yeah, might exactly. hate that character. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's like, you, you know, when you talk to someone when they're passionate about something or it ignites that fire and you kind of see that and you hear it in their voice, it's 
it's really fun. I don't know. On, even on the podcast, so, like I love listening to them later, especially for the episodes where we have like guests on because you just you hear that time together and you hear that like electricity. Um, and I think that's just really special. It shows like what you know passion for what you do like can you know can cross over into different mediums, and that's really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to actually give you just a big compliment on your podcast in the first place. I listened to. The Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, because I have kind of an emotional attachment to that play for a ton of reasons that I won't necessarily go into. One of my closest friends was in it, um, etc. So anyway, I just loved, first of all, how you spent time on the author's biography, because I've read a lot about the author, Tennessee Williams, mm-hmm. and I think I read Glass Menagerie something like seven or eight times, yeah. and <laughs> Streetcar Named Desire, and my, uh. my favorite college professor had a thing for Tennessee Williams. So then we all had the have a thing oh, for Tennessee yeah, oh, Williams. Sure. And and so I, that's the one I wanted to choose. And first you discussed, I think, the author's biography, and then you got into the era mm-hmm. in which it was written, and then you kind of discussed what was considered to be like socially conventional and what was like sort of like pushing the boundaries a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also you just discussed areas where the author had extra depth, maybe bottomless depth, um, and then just some of the funny parts of the plays. And then there were just other high values of theater that just came out, just all from your discussion. And I just wanted to compliment you on just being so comprehensive. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Sometimes, I, think... sometimes I get, I'm like, I'm like, are we talking about this play too much? Like, is anyone, like sometimes well, I'm like, does anyone listen to this all the way through? Like, what are we doing? I know. I like, Well, because we've thought about, like, because I, I love talking about the playwrights, and I think it's so important to know, like, you know, this play is coming from someone's heart, and I think we should know, like, about that person or try to get as close to that as we can and try to understand where they're coming from. Um, so there's been times where it's like, you know, some, talk, some of our podcasts are like an hour and a half, two hours long if we're getting into it. I'm hey, like, but that's oh fine. I, Joe Rogan's got like five-hour <laughs> podcasts. True. Right? right. Yeah. So, okay. That makes me feel it's a, better. It's a, it's a free-flowing platform. Yes. And that's, that's what it yeah. is. Yeah. So, it's always so hard because we love a bunch of different aspects of plays and of theater. So, it's hard for us to cut back. So, well, I'm and, glad you like And then also, too, from the English major literature point of view, because mm-hmm. that was one of my majors, I remember reading someplace that there were over 400 books of criticism written about Hamlet. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, at least 400. Yeah. And so I'm going to assume that most of them are not terribly repeating each other. Yeah. That there's actually that much to try to right. unearth from Shakespeare. Right. So, and then, of course, they would say the two founding books of our civilization are probably the complete works of Shakespeare and then mm-hmm. also, of course, the Bible. And, of mm-hmm. course, there's far more than 400 books written about the Bible. Right. So it's bottomless. Yeah. So that's just something that I enjoy about good literature, you know, that has just a profound impact and just helps us understand who we are. Mm-hmm. Right. No, totally. Ones. So I know sometimes I feel like we don't even scratch the surface of the play because there's just so much there. That's how I felt about Cat on Hot Yeah. I, at points I was like, I don't even know what to say about this. Like, what am I going to so say? Much. What am What am I? A, a high school theater director <laughs> going to say about cat that has not been said before, you know, it's just mm-hmm. like, so it's a little intimidating sometimes. Yeah. I'm like, I don't feel smart enough to really host this podcast. Hey, that's, that's the story of my life. Not yeah. feeling smart <laughs> enough to, to do things. We're just going to so, try it. Yeah. Fun. We're just going to try it and try to have fun. Yeah. Uh, and work hard. Okay. So let's get into <laughs> your philosophy of all those things like plot, character settings, symbols, themes, mysteries, and more. 
Um, and then just please feel free to illustrate your remarks with examples from theater, books, movies, songs, comics, just anything. Great. Um, and your life, etc. So I guess let's start with plot. Um, how important do you think plot is? For, for me, it's, it's number one. Because if I go... If I'm seeing a movie, if I'm watching a play, whatever, um, and I don't care about what's happening up there, if I don't care about... Uh, if I, I don't know, if I know what's going to happen or I can reasonably guess what's going to happen, um, I'm just not as interested, right? Um, it doesn't matter, unless I guess, unless I guess it's like Adam Driver is there right in front of me. And then I'd be like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll look and see what Adam Driver's doing like any day of the week, whatever. But if I, if I'm not engaged in the plot, if I don't have that going on in front of me, I personally can't connect to the material as much. See, I... Don't agree. I Great. think it stems more. Um, I think I like character based for yeah. the plot because sometimes I'll watch um, a movie or a play and it's just kind of like, oh, that was just a fun story. You know, like I think of like a farce like Rumors, where it's like it's not very character heavy. It's just like a fun time to watch. They're slamming a lot of doors, there's a lot of chaos, and then that's the whole kind of evening. Whereas, like, I care more about stories where I, I know the person, I'm rooting for them, and whatever journey they're kind of going on. Um, but, you know, I think plot is, like, really close. Because if you don't have that and you just have character, then, like, what are right. you doing? Those You're watching two, a documentary. Those two things are linked eternally, yeah. right? If you've, got a, if you've got a plot with no good characters, well, then you've got... I don't know, you've got a Transformers movie, which mm -hmm. has like a really weird plot, and I guess, like, yeah, maybe you could... Maybe it's really exciting to watch, but you don't care about any of the robots, yeah. right? Um, but then if you've got only good characters and they're not doing anything, right? then it's like, well, it's a bit of a... For me, it's a bit of a snooze fest. Yeah. So I think they have... Those are, like, very closely you've got, linked. you've got, like, like, Marriage Story. Yeah. You've got pretty good characters. <laughs> I think there's some pretty good characters in there. Yeah. But then you, I just like the plot. I was just like, who cares? Right. I but I think from a directing standpoint, from an acting standpoint, what I focus on is character. Because then I think the plot. Well, will. certainly from a directing standpoint, yeah. you've got to focus on character more than plot. Yeah. Yeah. But if the playwright did his or her job according to your lights, William, then plot should already be taken care of. Right. So, so therefore, as a director, you can focus on character because somebody else already did that other job. Right, 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 right. right. And you've got to get your actors ready to portray those characters. And then also the actor's job is to, like, well, you've got to tell that character's story. You've mm -hmm. got to uh, let the audience know, like, what's going on, like, with the, within that character, I guess. So. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of a discussion on plot and character, and, and I'm sure we'll weave more of that into everything else. Are you familiar with, and do you have opinions on, uh, things of, for example, Aristotle's theory on plot and character, mm -hmm. or maybe like a Joseph Campbell, which that's your cosmogonic cycle or your monomyth. Uh, do you have opinions on structures, plot structures, yeah. like that? Well, what I will say, I always... Uh cite Aristotle when it comes to, and I'm sure if you listen to the playwrights, you'll hear this, but I, um, spectacle is like the least important thing to him. And I think he is right on track, like with that. And that's kind of how I do a lot of my theater. Cause you know, he rates everything where it goes like 
plot, character, diction, which is like the words we speak. Mm -hmm. um, music, what the, what it sounds like. That's, music, that's yeah. There's setting, maybe I don't remember. Yeah, but oh, and then yeah, and then spectacle. But yeah. I just like that's kind of how I see like the order of things when I'm like directing because if if the core of the heart of the show like isn't there, then what are you doing, you know? And I, you know, like, what is this all for? Is it just to, like, see a, you know, see a beautiful thing before you? Because sometimes that is, like, really cool. Right, right, right. But Spectacle, just so that people understand, I guess that would be, like, the special effects or yeah, the like pretty the background. Set, yeah. mm -hmm. The set, like, costumes, costumes the, the... Acrobatics. Yes. Yeah, that kind anything kind of, like, extra to make it dazzle, basically. Right. Um, but I... You know, and that can be, like, really amazing. I mean, if you have enough money behind it, like, yeah, I would love a realistic set and put it up there and great, here we go. But, you know, when it comes to making art for, in my life, when I've had to do it with not that much money in, in a room with, you know, black walls and a couple of cubes, what are you focused on? You know, you focus on the heart of the piece, which is, I think, the character and the plot. But I will say with the um, monomyth man's journey, um... I don't know if I have that kind of mindset when it comes to directing because I'm like a very much like kind of ensemble based uh, type director where um, I don't view it as maybe one person's journey, but I think it's like all of the characters on stage or in the film, like what are they all experiencing together and how are they affecting each other um, yeah, think, is kind of how I see it. Yeah, I think we can get tripped up with like the hero's journey because we sometimes see it as like this magic formula mm -hmm. of like oh this is how you tell a story right. and like yeah it works you know it's the original star wars of course like that's a <laughs> great it's, a, it's an incredible <laughs> hero's journey right and it works on almost every level right um but then and then people try to recreate that and they just think that's this magical or it's this it's this uh, you know tried and true formula or whatever but there's so many other intangibles to telling a story right we care about the characters within the original Star Wars, right? We care about what happens to them. We care about their fight, all that kind of stuff. If you and and you've got great actors portraying those characters um, who really know what they're doing. Um, you you know Han Solo is not just this like big jerk, but you're like, yeah, I want Han Solo to win at the end. You know, I want Luke to win. You care about him. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's not a it's not a one man. Oh, it's not a whole automatic home run, I guess. Yeah. Just, just, uh, I probably should have had us clarify this at the beginning, and you could help me out with this, but with the hero's journey, essentially, there's a belief by some people that every story has to employ this skeleton, and that if you don't have the skeleton, readers or viewers are going to look at the story and think there's pieces missing, or they're going to think something's incomplete mm -hmm. and they're not going to like it. Mm -hmm. And so the hero's journey essentially is you have an ordinary person who is living an ordinary life, and then they either decide to go on an adventure or they're kidnapped and hijacked, and then they're taken into the night world. They were in the day world, which was the ordinary world. They were just an ordinary person living an ordinary life. The night world is filled with strange yet intimate forces. It's kind of like looking at your house in moonlight. <laughs> Suddenly, everything looks shiny and different and potentially scary. There could be snakes on the bed. Amen. You know, <laughs> it's just a bed. But at night, the mystery comes out. Mm -hmm. And then in the night world, you go through a series of tests 
or challenges, you probably encounter a guide figure, an old wise person who has been there, done that. That's the Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, for example. Or you might run across a false guide. That would be Darth Vader in the Empire Strikes Back. Um, and then there could be more tests, more battles, but then there's a big climactic battle, like a dragon battle, or you're fighting your evil twin, or or just it's the ultimate thing. This is the blowing up of the Death Star, I guess. Mm -hmm. And after that, then one of four things happens. Sometimes all four things happen. There's a sacred marriage where every Shakespeare comedy, I guess, ends with a marriage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, or there is a elixir theft. That's when you capture the gold or they take the ring and Lord of the Rings and they throw it into the fire and save the kingdom. Or it's the end of the scam movie, like Ocean's Eleven, when they steal the, yes. steal the stuff. You just watch that. You know? There's uh, <laughs> glorification. That could happen at the end. That's like the shining moment. For example, they blow up the Death Star and you have that glorification. Right, right. Or there's Father Atonement, which means mm -hmm. that the uh, order is restored, like the good kingdom is restored. Like at the end of Robin Hood, like Robin Hood after he gets done robbing everybody and doing all the rest of that, the good king comes in and takes things over, like, and the kingdom is restored to goodness. So the oppressive king, the Kim Jong-un character in Robin Hood is out. And instead, now we have, you know, a shining, you know, united Korean democracy or something like sure. that. Yeah. Sure. So, um, and then finally, there's a gift given to the community. And that's essentially every story, if, if, if it's going to follow along with this hero's journey. That's do you, can you add anything or yeah. did I, did I misremember anything? No, 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 no. Cause that is it. I think what, um, cause I think like theater in the early, uh, 19th century was kind of like around that point. Do you remember it's Eugene Screeve. It's called the, the well-made play. The well-made play. And okay. it follows kind of that structure where it's like every, all of his plays were under that and they were very clean. And like, there was, you know, it's almost like tied with a bow. And then there is, uh, kind of a, dissonance in the theater world where people are like, no, we don't want to do that anymore. We want to kind of find and explore like naturalism. And then, and that was just, you know, a meat market on stage and people would just come and buy their meat and you would just watch that. And that would be the show. And like that, <laughs> and it was like and so they crazy. Even, they, they even, didn't they make that theater like especially cold to yeah. make it feel like you were in like a, like a, not a grocery store freezer, but I guess kind yeah, of, kind of, of that. you know, but, and so that happened and then, you know, kind of led into realism and then that led into like absurdism and, uh, I don't know, surrealism. And, right. and so all of these different forms kind of broke off of that where they weren't following that kind of structure anymore. Um, where they were, you know, like waiting for Gatto is, you know, it does have like a point. But I wouldn't say, like, you go on a whole journey with them because it's them just waiting right, right. on stage. I think, I think theater breaks away from that hero's yeah. journey much more than, like, Hollywood a film movie. Does. yeah. Right. And then even, like, even, like, big Hollywood movies, almost all, I mean, like, I mean, almost all of them follow that, right? Um, but then you get, like, kind of the more indie movies are going to be a little more experimental with mm -hmm. what they are trying to do. Right. So. Gotcha. So then that's really kind of the take on plot is that we can either have the well-made story or we can have something that's kind of experimental, like all the movements that you cited. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Okay. And I, I think both of you have made your positions pretty clear on plot versus characters. Is there any final things that you would like to add on, on that? I guess I would, 
you know, I guess I'd ask you, Will, when you're acting or preparing for a role, is, like, how much do you think about the plot when you are, like... When I'm acting? Yeah. I think the best acting that I've ever done is when I've thought about um, and tried to portray the overall message of the show rather than the plot. You've got to get, of course, the story across, right? But the, my my most successful acting has been when I'm thinking about when I'm when I'm trying to convey like what do I want the audience to come away with at the end of this? What do I want to emphasize? Hmm. Like a particular theme? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But are you thinking of Waiting for Gato? Yes. Okay. I and I don't want to take away your experience. Oh, you're gonna criticize me? No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, not. I'm just like. <laughs> I just think with a show like that because it is so complicated and you like the audience has to understand it's almost like you know with Shakespeare where you're very focused on like you want to make it clear because they might not know what you're saying unless you try really hard for them to know what you're saying right the so gestures like, really yeah. have to match the words yeah. because oh, sure. audiences will pick it up yeah yeah. If, if the actors and directors are doing a bang-up job. Yeah, and that gets kind of like that, especially, I think, with Waiting for Gatto. So I totally get you on that front. But I don't know if, that, if that's the case, or it should be the case for every show. I don't know. Sure. I just think... I, I, I just... I, that's... Yeah, that's just been my experience. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I didn't... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm attacking your experience. I apologize. Because um, my experience... <laughs> what's... Sarah, what's your No, experience? I feel bad. Um... No, I was just, we focused a lot on uh, focusing on the other character on stage, um, impacting them. Um, so it's kind of taking it off of yourself because, you know, when you're talking, you know, to your spouse, to your family members, to your friends, I, I'm not the type of person, I just kind of like say what I feel. And that's a lot of characters in, on stage because you're watching the kind of pinnacle moment of their life. So, of course, they're just going to, like, kind of blurt it out. Or if they don't, that means something. There's subtext. Right. Right? So, I think I, for me personally, when acting, I'm just thinking about how to impact the other person or how to get that and a reaction out of them. Um, yeah, I don't think about the plot too much. And maybe I should. Maybe I should put that more into it. Maybe that adds some more depth. Because I don't think I've truly ever, like, thought about it a lot. I just kind of know the story, but I'm not like actively um, engaging with the overall broad story. I think as the director, that's kind of there. You job. have to you have to be concerned with the plot because mm -hmm. you have to hit the right story beats. Right. If you don't emphasize the right story beats, then the audience misses crucial plot points. If the if there's supposed to be I don't know like in a mystery like you're supposed to see or there's a character who's supposed to I don't know I don't know. Take a, hide the take, murder yeah, weapon. Hide the murder weapon, exactly. And you don't see that on stage because that person did it in the shadows, but the audience is supposed to see that. Mm -hmm. Then you've done a pretty bad job directing that. Yeah. Right? So maybe it really depends on what role you are doing. So oh, the director focuses more on plot. I think the more. director starts with um, setting, setting the actors off on the right path for characters. Uh -huh. But the, that's a lot of the actor's job is to figure out, Let's figure out their character. that. Yeah, and okay. Then the, and then the, the director focuses on, on other things, on how to bring the rest of it to life. That's our final stance. That's our final stance. <laughs> okay. There it is. Okay. There it is. All right. Well, I let's, feel good about that. Let's clarify uh, everything for listeners then. How do we achieve awesomeness in theater as writers, 
and then as actors, and then as directors. Maybe we should take them one at a time. Yeah. So as writers. So Will has more experience writing. He's actually an award-winning playwright. Um, sure. Oh, what's your play? <laughs> oh, I wrote a one act in college. Awesome. But it won yeah. a national award. It's kind of cool. It was a semifinalist. Yes, sorry. Yes. Sorry. But yes. national. No, it was good. It was, it was a fun play to write. I wrote, it was like kind of a farce comedy. Title? Um, it's called The Curtain Rod and the Fermented Man. Oh, it's a funny title. <laughs> it was kind of an odd couple comedy, and it was, yeah, it was fun. Isn't it two guys in, like, a college? Two guys in, like, a, yeah, they're just graduated college. They're sharing a dorm. One was really a slob, and one was really uptight. And they kind of, got into it. They got into it. They were friends, but they were kind mm. of enemies. Neil Simon inspired. Very much so. <laughs> Is Very it funny? So. Uh, people laughed at it. when <laughs> we, had, we did a stage reading of it. No, it, it, it was a serious it. drama, but people yeah. laughed at it. No, no, it, no, it was supposed to be a comedy. Thank, yeah. thank goodness. So. And they did the full like yeah, they, for was, the next year of the one accent. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Funny. They did the full production. Yeah, it's fun. Okay, um, so how okay. do we so achieve how do you, awesomeness? How do you write? How do you write? Wow, guys, um, <laughs> that play took a lot. It was, uh, it was that was a lot of planning um, before you are writing the dialogue. Um, I knew. Well, no. That ending changed a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a ton of writing, rewriting. Um, it was, I had a pretty good structure in my mind. I was like, okay, cool, I know how I want this to end. And then I was like, I wrote it all out with the dialogue. I heard, because I wrote it for a class. Um, and then I heard, that it was, you know, we read it in class out loud. And I was like, whoa, this isn't working. And then I got feedback from people and I reworked the ending several different times, uh, and then I got to a place where I was happy with it. Um, and then I rewrote it again for the final submission in that contest I was in. So I got even more feedback and stuff. So um, it's writing is really really hard, but it's super. It can be, yeah, it can be really rewarding, and it can be. I I really like doing it. Um, I wish I had more time to do it, but um, and I wish I had more ideas but but you yeah. know uh, I think the hardest thing is fleshing out like I go to you know I was just trying to write a scene even this year just for fun just to see get some juices flowing and I always just run into the issue that's too short mm. you know it's like you know it's three pages and that's like and, it, and I'm like I don't know where, I don't know what to do maybe you should be writing know. skits yeah. Sarah <laughs> yeah, yeah honestly probably um but yeah, it was just like how I always just hit a wall if, you know, because I think I get to the point too soon. I think. Yeah, I think that's where people reading it. Yeah. Out loud to you. Yeah. Really helps. Yeah. 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 And, yeah, and you're like, oh, that was not as clear as I thought it was. Yeah. You know? Or just getting other people's feedback. It feels vivid when you write something. Yep. And then when you try to communicate it to another person, they could very easily say, well, huh? Yeah, exactly. mm -hmm. And so that's where I guess the rewriting and the rewriting and hearing it out loud and then hearing it out loud again and getting yeah. more feedback where that's just really helpful. I think that's what I'm picking yeah. up from both of you. No, for sure. And just, and staying open. I think it's also hard when you're, I mean, anything about what we do is like so personal, but I, especially yes. from like a playwriting standpoint, um, you know, that's coming from your brain. It's like this brainchild, this is this imaginary world that you're making up. Right. So then if someone gives you like a critique, you're like, Okay, um, but that's like my favorite character, and I can't just—I don't want to just get rid of them, you know. Because sometimes it'll be a huge change like that. So I think it's really just 
taking things, but also taking them with a grain of salt. Because at the end of the day, it is your story. It's your name going on this play. So what do you want to say? You know? Yes. So I just think kind of both ways, just being present with people and being willing and open to listen because you're wanting to make an impact on people, so might as well. I used to think, I don't know if I think this anymore, I I just, I I don't know if I do, that if you get feedback from 10 people, and if seven or more people are saying the same thing, they're Mm. probably right, but they might be wrong, but they're probably right. right. And if one person, and one and only one is saying something, that person might be completely accurate. Yeah. Or they could just be out there in left field. Mm. Right. Especially if you respect the person so much, then sometimes it's hard to kind of discern, like, but, you know, I really love what they do, so, but is that the right move for me? I think right. I would run into that, too. That, um, and I always yeah. had kind of, like, two categories of readers. One were, I guess, people who were kind of professional. They had spent quite a bit of time in whatever field that I'm, thinking about here Mm -hmm. is it novels is it plays but then there were also the ordinary readers and if it didn't grab the ordinary readers then I thought oopsie daisy yeah now I've got a big problem because maybe all the critics like it but none of the ordinary people like it and I kind of wanted to be in the in both camps I wanted to be like a Charles Dickens or Jane Austen or William Shakespeare where the public likes what you're doing, but the critics also like what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Talk yes. about people pleasing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel that. I was like, yeah, wow, I really want to be. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should be doing things that nobody likes, including me, just to fight just the people pleasing. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then how do we achieve awesomeness as actors or actresses? Um, so I... I think specificity um, is one of the most important things uh, when developing your character. You know, everyone, you always say, let me tell you. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Like, I've always thought, like, yeah, I know my character. Like, she's just some, like, average person, whatever. Yeah, but, you know, like, your question of, like, well, what's your quirk? What makes you tick? What makes you different than every other person that maybe no one would expect? And maybe we don't even see that on stage. But... What are those things about who you're playing that, like, you will know? And that's almost like a connection between you and the page, right? Like, that can kind of be that secret between you two that makes it a little more personal. So I think that's what I mean by specificity. And um, not being so focused on yourself or, you know, that's, like, really hard in what we do because, you know, you go out there, it's you on stage. It's not anyone else. It's... You know, like when they kind of criticize your performance, you take it so much more personally because that was me out there. I was performing and putting my heart on the line and then you said, you know, it fell flat or whatever, you know. Um, So I think trying not to be focused on yourself, but kind of like I said, focused on the other person and that makes it a little easier and it makes all of your acting more activated and alive because you're trying to impact the other person. Oh, so ironically, if we just focus on the other actors and actresses, yeah. maybe that brings out our best performance. Right. Acting is reacting. Act, yeah, acting is reacting. Is that a saying? I okay, yes. I'm not I'm not yeah. that much in the theater world. That's a yeah. saying. Yes. yes. I like that. That's good. And um, I will say one more thing. I'm so sorry. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> I know. Uh, take my acting class next year. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but if you <laughs> are looking at a scene. I guess I do get a little more formulaic about a scene where, and, you know, I'm sure if you're an actor, you've heard of these things, but, like, knowing your objective, and that's what your character wants, um, and doing whatever you can to get what you want, 
you know, at the end of the day, that's the root of everything. And, and know how, and know how you are getting what you want. Yes, Tactics. and know what's in your way. You know. Um, so I think for a scene, what really kind of blew my mind, I had always thought of the play, overarching play, you had one super objective, but in grad school, we kind of talked about how each scene, you should have a super objective for the scene, and then there's, you know, all of your actions stem from that smaller super objective, which is under the main one, right. you know, um, which just kind of like open the door rather than like your only possessed by this one word it could be like 20 different words throughout the play because right. your character goes on a journey so you shouldn't be like bound to that one um so it can kind of open up new avenues in that way regard yeah. if that makes sense <laughs> yeah it does yeah. i love it so yeah. that's for me well right um i think for especially for beginning actors i think um mastering material is is incredibly important um i work with a lot of high school actors who have a lot of trouble um, learning their learning lines. Learning their lines. Right. It sounds... I was, I was in place as a high yeah. school it sounds, guy. It sounds simple, but if you don't... If you are grasping yeah. at your next line... Um, How can not, you know your you're, character? You're yeah. You are just saying yeah. the words that you remember. Might as well um, just read. <laughs> might as well just read. Yeah. Uh, so, mastering that material and kind of like what Sarah was saying, it's like doing your homework and, and understanding like what, what, do you, what do you want in the scene. Um, that's how I begin every rehearsal. It's just like, or, or every, I don't know, I guess, rehearsal process. Um, so, yeah, all mastering the material um, um, and having a sense of what, kind of like what I was talking about earlier, like what the playwright is trying to say. I think that can help some people. It mm -hmm. helped me a lot. Um, maybe it doesn't help as many other people, but... I think that helps. I'm so happy for you that helped you. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. Thank you. It's good. Um, finally, directors. How can directors achieve awesomeness? I... Uh, there's a lot of practical stuff with directing. Yes. you got to be organized. You've got to know from day one what your plan is. If you are flying by the seat of your pants as a director, you will, you will either um, everything might come together at the last minute, uh, but there's a good chance that it will not. Mm -hmm. um, and if you've got a plan from the beginning, if you're organized, if you've got the people around you to help you, um, then you're going to have a good chance of succeeding. Um, you've also got to do your homework. You've also got to master the material. Yeah. Um, and uh, be able to, and have that message that you what do you what do you want the audience to come away with? So everybody's going to come away with something different. So it's at least ninety eight percent planned. Yeah. Um, Very organized. I, I, it, I don't know it, if it's that high a percentage. Um, I, um, I sure. No, sorry. I, I mean, I would just like, I was just going to add, I would probably say 80% planned because I think there is room for like inspiration to strike for oh, actors sure. you, to you do can, something that you, they're like, oh, that changed my blocking, but that makes so much more sense and it's clearer for you, you know? So I think there's that room for uh, creative. You, yeah. There's conversation. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you, but if you, um, if you leave room for that, great. Um, if you end up changing things, mm -hmm. great. That's that's the creative process, right? Right. And you, as the director, have to be elastic enough to be like, oh, 
yeah, that's a better idea. You should do that instead. Yeah. Or like, oh, wow, I loved what you just brought to the table. Keep that. Okay, yeah. so you could be very planned out, 98% planned out, yeah. provided you're willing to be super flexible, mm -hmm. you know, bend yourself into a pretzel, be a contortionist. If the new idea comes along, well, then we're going to ditch this part of the plan. We're going to replace it yeah. right. with this other part of the plan. I yeah. think I struggled in the beginning as a director where I was the 98%. Okay. And if it wasn't the 98%, I was like very upset. I was like, why is this not in place? Why aren't you doing your, you know, like I was like, this has to be exactly like this. And I think it stifled, you know, some of like the actors or like, I would get so in my head of just like, no, this moment has to be this. And if it doesn't, mm. it fails. But that's not like a healthy mindset to have where you're creating this story. So it's not, it's not moments to succeed. It's, you know, how are we telling the story? How are we finding like those opportunities for growth for these characters um, or the sense? <laughs> so I don't know. I, now I'm, I try to be like a little bit more 80% and put more trust in the actors and in my designers too, because that's also a huge aspect you have to be in charge of. And there has to be like a ton of respect for the designers. And I think that sometimes gets lost. Um, I didn't know about it when I was in high school acting. I was like, wow, the set and the costumes are magically here. And I'm just on stage. Like where did this yeah. come from? <laughs> exactly. It just appeared. People made it. <laughs> yeah. But like, it's just, it, that is, that's as important as the acting, as far as like how much work and thought goes into it. Oh, a know? ton, and a ton. So I've seen directors yeah. build their own sets. I mean, yeah. they haul in the lumber, they bring in the nails, they bring in the hammers, and then they, they start with uh, basically a concrete floor. And then by the time they're finished, they have a scene or excuse me, a set that just looks like no other set. Right, Yeah. right. So it's just like, it's having that, respect and openness in place but also that plan because I hate being in that conversation where they're like what do you want and you know sometimes when I was green I'd be like I just trust you whatever you want to do you know but I know it's like going out with friends and then it's Friday night and you say what do you want to do and then they say I don't know yeah. what do you want to do and then everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is so like awful. we're not getting anywhere. Yeah. We're just going to go to Applebee's again. No. Yeah. It, yeah, it's decision making at its finest. So yeah. if you are an indecisive person, maybe directing isn't for you. And I, I link directing a lot of times to, well, I've almost exclusively just directed high school students. Mm -hmm. So I link it a lot to running a theater department. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's where a lot of the practical organization side comes about with me. Is like I, I, this might sound bad, but I rarely see myself as an artiste of like, or like, ooh, we're going to be, this is going to be so avant-garde. It's going to be an incredible experience for the, for the audience. I'm just like, can we please just remember where we're supposed to go on stage, people? Can you bring can your you, money for your t-shirt? Can you bring your money for your t-shirt? Can you maybe memorize some lines? Maybe you don't need to have that orthodontist appointment during tech week. Maybe you could push that back. You know, it's all that stuff. So I, I, nuts that's, and bolts. That's oh yeah, brass yeah. tap. That's yeah. what I. That's that's. I, I would love to be able to direct. I I don't even know how I would handle directing professional actors. I don't even know how that would go. Yeah. Because I'm so used to working with high schoolers, and high schoolers are great, and they can surprise you and and break your heart and stuff. But it's um it's it's so it's a lot of fun, but. Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally different um, than yeah. directing yeah. Pro professionals. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure, for sure. Okay, well, 
I thought that was just an awesome discussion. Let's move on to setting. Um, setting is actually something I think a lot about. I just feel like it's an underrated category. I think people, just your average person who's intelligent and likes the movies and likes to read a book, thinks about plot and they think about character. And then they ask themselves, hey, is, does this author have a style that I like to read or is it impenetrable? So I, I think they think about things like that. And I think setting just maybe gets taken for granted. But... I think it's also part of the whole premise of things. Mm -hmm. So I just have a few words to say about that. With setting, that's kind of half the whole premise, say, with historical fiction or with science fiction and fantasy, things like that. I just love the author, Tom Wolfe. Tom Wolfe is actually one of my favorite novelists. Bonfire of the Vanities might be my favorite book. And it is set in the go-go 1980s, and it's super chaotic and... He wrote it, I think it published it in 87 or 88, somewhere in there. And he was just terrified, absolutely terrified that somebody else was going to beat him to it because he just thought New York is the most exciting city in the world. It's the most diverse place. It's just crazy. And there's just nothing like it. And he thought it's irresistible. Then he sort of looked around at American literature since roughly 1945. And he noticed that people were just ignoring big stories. So many novels took place inside of a farmhouse in Vermont, and they never, ever got out of the farmhouse for like 300 pages. They never went to town. They never went to Quick Trip and got a Slurpee. Nothing. <laughs> he wanted to do a story that would capture all of New York. He wanted the highs. He wanted the lows. He wanted the middle. He wanted the saints. He wanted the scumbags. He wanted just absolutely everything. And he was just thinking, how could somebody else not be writing this book? Mm. He persuaded me when I was reading him talk about this of just how monumental setting is because I was one of those people who was kind of taking setting for granted. But yeah. that's why I was always picking up various science fiction and fantasy novels as a teenager was because the setting attracted me as well as the basic premise. So that was kind of a long lead in on my part. But what are your thoughts on setting? I, I'm thinking like, however you want to take it. Could be a historical setting, could be time and place, could be whatever you want to discuss. Right. Sure. No, I think that's really interesting because, I mean, I definitely, even just personally for fun, like we'll pick TV shows. Like I love watching British people. I think they're incredible. I think they're the greatest actors and I will choose any show that's based anywhere in Europe. Like I'm about it. Or I also, I don't know, I so or like the 80s, like I love like period pieces like that. So I think as a viewer, I totally get that where you're drawn to like a certain time period or a certain like place. And I will, that's mm -hmm. where I choose a lot of my television from, I will say. Sure. What's interesting about setting um, and what can be kind of fun from an artistic standpoint is if you're doing a play, you know, theater, you can kind of choose the setting and that can help tell say what you want to say to the audience you know like even thinking about skin of our teeth by like thornton wilder it's like it's in this post-apocalyptic type of world and like yeah. act three you know act one they're just like this perfect family act two they're at a circus act three it's post-apocalyptic like chaos and you can kind of like interpret that however you want you can put that in any time period like in even american history of just like what do you want to say and how will that how will choosing this type of setting help you tell 
tell that story. Okay, um, so does the author give us liberty to take that story and, for for example, maybe put it in the 1950s, and then the last scene is, well, what if we would have had World War III in right. 1959? Yeah. And the nukes would have been flying, and then once we were out of nukes, then the Red Army would have come over and ransacked us, right. et cetera. I think, yeah, I think yeah. Thornton Wilder's, like, he doesn't say, like, this has to happen there, okay. especially for that piece. But some playwrights will, because sometimes it matters to them. Some, yeah, a lot of players yeah. are in a, are particular in a particular time. setting. Yeah. Yeah. Great yeah. Gatsby, pretty much, it's helpful. I think if yeah. you put it in the 1920s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely. Exactly. And then there are pieces that I don't think take as much, take advantage of setting as much as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to direct You Can't Take It With You, uh, which is a very famous American comedy. One of the most one of the most produced plays of all time in America, um, and it is set also in New York City um, in the 1930s, Depression era, and I don't think it takes advantage of that at all. It's mm. with a wealthy family; uh, they're not feeling any kind of hardship. Um, of course, it's a comedy, but you know, it's not. It's it, I don't think it takes advantage of that. So when a story kind of wastes that, it is a little disappointing. Uh, yeah, you feel maybe yeah. just a little ripped off. Yeah. Because people are... I Okay, I, I think everybody has free will. I mm-hmm. think that to say otherwise would be a very negative and pessimistic thing. That being said, I feel like we are all creatures of our time and place. Mm-hmm. You know, we do get shaped and formed just a little bit yeah. by the era and the location in which we live. Yeah, no, I am totally with you. And I think when it comes to stories like that, what a great opportunity is like as a director is you can try to find ways to bring out that time period. Even if it's not like obvious in the script, it's not breaking any bounds to kind of drop hints of great depression or how can we tell that in like the actor's responses to things, you know, like, how do we draw that out a little bit, even if it's just not, like, clear on the page? And that's why, like, dramaturgy is so important for, like, if you're wanting to produce a play, it, knowing when it was written can, even if it's not obvious of, like, why they wrote it, it might be to them. And they just didn't make it obvious because maybe the place they were in, maybe the people they were around, that wasn't maybe socially polite to make it that right. in your face, you know, but they still wanted to tell a story. You know, you remind me of something that I read about Agatha Christie. Which Agatha Christie, of course, wrote, I can't remember, maybe about 85 murder mysteries. Yeah. <laughs> and she actually is the world's number one best-selling novelist of all time. Mm-hmm. I believe that publishers apparently keep terrible records, but they think that she sold at least two billion books, which is, I think, maybe six times as many as Stephen King. Wow. So she's she's the cat's meow. Yeah. You know, she's the caterpillar's kimono. She's like, <laughs> you know, just... She's the elephant's instep, all of these things. She's just amazing. Well, they say that if you read her books now, you pick up all of these historical period details that really establish a setting. For example, she'll just casually refer to gramophones and just whatever the Mm -hmm. technology was at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's all incidental to her. But now you read these things that were written 85 years ago, like Murder on the Orient Express. Right. And you just have to, you have to situate it yeah. in that era. I suppose you could try to update it, but you'd probably have to convolute it in order to do so. Exactly. So. Which can run into some issues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and people would be wondering, why are you contaminating? Yeah. 
right. Agatha. I mean, Agatha sold two billion books, and who you're, are you? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, what do we think about like changing the setting and time period of like Shakespeare, which is very common? You you put it, you put you know, you put Macbeth in feudal Japan instead of Scotland. You know, I think like, it's great. Okay. I, I do too. I, yeah. I think it's great. I, I don't yeah. want. I don't want to just say it's done well. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Saw, we saw like a, a Beatles interpretation. Oh my gosh! What was it? It was, uh, it was like two was, gentlemen of Verona. Yeah. Maybe, and it was, it was <laughs> the Beatles was, in the sixties. Everybody was dressed like the Beatles. Yeah. And we were like, why? Why? <laughs> like, <laughs> if it doesn't have a point, if it's, if it's just for fun, I'm like, uh, but if you have like, you know, it's rooted in something that you're passionate about, and you're like, this would be really cool to like tie this in. You know, like more power to you. Amazing, go for it. You yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it all just depends upon execution, right. Right, right, right. essentially. For sure. Okay, um, symbols in theater. What constitutes an ideal symbol? We were talking about this before. We were, and, and we were kind of jump. We were kind of came to a, an agreement of like a symbol can't um, be like so in your face or shouldn't. Well, so yeah, it can face. be. But. It can be. But it shouldn't be so in your face that uh, it's just like so obvious. I don't know. So like I was like I was like, well, Superman as a as a Christ figure. I'm like, okay, you can make him a Christ figure um, in some ways, but if it's so like in what was it? It was Man of Steel. There's a or maybe it was the sequel to that. I don't know. But anyway, in Man of Steel, there's a there's a scene. There's a shot where he's like looks like he's like on a cross, like crucified on a cross, and you're just like. Yeah, Zack Snyder, we get it. Like he's like he's a Christ figure. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so that kind of stuff really bugs me. Yeah. Um, and then you said something interesting about like how characters deal or, or yeah or deal with the symbols. Yeah, or having to like deal with the symbols. Like you know, we talk a lot about uh, like heat as a symbol and how everyone's constantly talking about it. Like all the characters, are like oh, it's so hot in here. And then they just kind of continue on in their conversation. Or, oh, why isn't the AC... You know, just like yeah. something. And, that's um, a, and, that's and a, it's a, because tension is rising in the play. Yes, right. and, exactly. Okay. And, and a lot everyone of, feels it. Yeah. And a lot know? of playwrights, especially American playwrights, yeah. love to put heat. Like, they yeah. love to set their, their plays in summertime. Tennessee Williams, August Wilson. Uh, you know, you've got a point. I just realized Great Gatsby... Chapter 7, when they're in the hotel room and Gatsby and Tom confront each other, it's unbearably hot mm-hmm. yeah. in the room. So of course, I, they didn't have air conditioning. Right. I mean, they're filthy rich. They don't have air conditioning. <laughs> yeah. 12 angry so, men. Are they? I'm just kidding. 12 angry men. It's incredibly hot the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, or we were even talking about, uh, there's this play called Clean House. And it's kind of, I mean, that one's a little in your face, but when you see it... Uh, her house is very clean. She's a very neurotic type person and has her life sort of unravels, so does her home. You know? Okay. And so you see that like as an audience and it's like truly very like profound experience. Um, and so I think things like that where the symbol affects the character, it's being affected as the character is mm. going on their journey. I think that's a little stronger than just an in-your-face Here's the symbol of the show. <laughs> yeah, it and then it can't be too subtle mm-hmm. where, like, like well, maybe on the, in the set, like, well, we're going to make one wall, like, the wallpaper is, like, kind of coming off. 
you yeah. know, and to symbolize like whatever the decay, know, the decay <laughs> or whatever, yeah. of the family well, sunburn peeling yeah. skin yeah sure you know you know it yeah. can't be so subtle that no well maybe only a few people pick up on it and that's i think that's and maybe okay. that's special maybe that's okay yeah. no i i actually i kind of like that like i i like the symbols that i get the first time around mm-hmm. yeah and then i like the symbols that i missed that i catch the second time around and then i like the symbols that i catch when i read it 10 years later sure. and yeah. i'm probably not as smart as i was 10 years ago but <laughs> But for whatever reason, I picked up on it. Sure. So exactly, and and, um, and I love like when two people have uh, different views on what a symbol means. You know, maybe some maybe it could mean two very different things to two different people. I think that's perfect. That's there's beautiful. there's this scene in the movie Strangers on a Train by Hitchcock, which mm-hmm. if people haven't seen it, it's really great because this uh, I, I probably shouldn't recite the whole play. I'll try to be brief, but there's this guy who's a tennis star and he does not get along with his wife and that's kind of well known from the newspapers but he meets this whack job on a train and this they're they're traveling and they're having dinner together and the whack job proposes you know i really can't stand my father and uh you can kill my father and i could kill your wife and it would be great because crisscross there's no motive like, how would they ever catch either one of us? Here I go kill your wife. There's no explanation. So they wouldn't catch me. And uh, you kill my father. And boom, you get away with it. And everybody's happy, you know? Right. And so uh, the tennis star just kind of ignores him. And uh, then the uh, psycho goes ahead and kills the man's wife. Oh, wow. Well, because he's psycho. He's yeah. doing his job, yeah. you know? So, <laughs> in his mind. Yeah, in his mind, he's doing yeah. his job. So later in the movie, there's the scene where uh, I think a policeman shows up at the psycho's house and the dog transforms into three different symbols in a very short period of time. Like when he's with the policeman, he's mm-hmm. man's best friend and he's this cuddly little thing. And then when he's in the house, he's this snarling beast from hell. And then in this third scene, then he's he's the person who solves part of the crime by sniffing out. So, I mean, the dog plays three different roles. So, I mean, is he man's best friend? No. He could be the snarling beast from hell. No. He could be the, the kind of like the wise symbol, you know, yeah. that finds something out. And it was just great because Hitchcock just switches it, boom, boom, boom. Right. And, of course, I missed all this. I had to read this in a commentary. <laughs> but then afterward, I was like, I guess this is why I'm reading the commentary, because that's so good. Right. right. Yeah, I just watched uh, I May Destroy You, and the finale, it switches from, like, you, you know, you watch the whole end of, like, the story, you think, and then the scene starts over. And then you watch a whole different way it could go down, and then it starts over, and whatever. But she's, like, a writer. You know, you're going on this journey with her, and so you don't really know, like, what happened, honestly. And Mm -hmm. I think there's, like, that's the beauty of it, is because she was going on this path, and she was dreaming up all these scenarios and driving herself crazy. But in the end, she kind of had to work through that, and it really, nothing happened. None of those. None of it happened. happened. It was all in her head. Yeah. Yeah, which is just, I think it's just so powerful in, like, those moments. It's like, no, sometimes you just have to go through it yourself in your own kind of way, your own terms. Um, Yeah, so from, like, a storytelling standpoint, I think Michaela Cole's incredible because she wrote that and acted in it. (laughs) Thank you. And I love stuff like that. I'm going to look that one up. That one sounds great. Yeah. That one sounds great. Well, let's maybe finish up this discussion of plot, character, setting with themes. Um, 
Mark Twain said, literature and plays that preach on the surface inevitably fail. They are preachy. They club you over the head. You were kind of talking about that a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I guess it's because I teach a class in World War II and Cold War. I just immediately think of Soviet art or Nazi art. And I just got done reading a book about a true story of a lady who defected from North Korea and what things were like there. And pretty much all of their literature and movies and everything centers around worshiping the dictator of the country. So, I mean, they create like this whole cult of personality. So I, all of that literature preached and movies, et cetera, in the Soviets, the Nazis, the North Koreans, it just preach, 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 preach. And it fails. It's, it's just terrible. It will not stand. It did not withstand any sort of test of time. Right. But then Mark Twain said, you have to preach, but you have to preach underneath the surface. If you preach on the surface, everyone will not like you. If you preach underneath the surface, that's the only way your work can survive. Mm -hmm. And I just would love to hear your thoughts on how do we have a strong theme and not beat the reader to death with it. Right. That almost, um, that almost makes me think, or just as you were saying that, or what's underneath the surface, just as like an actor, um, just knowing like your subtext very well, I think. And that also kind of ties into theme because like, what are you saying? What are you trying to say? Or, you know, what is, maybe what is your character trying to tell through this whole story? And it might be different than what, is the end. What, what do you mean by subtext um, for people who are yeah. not familiar with all this theater talk? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so subtext is, um, so I could be like, Hey, Will, how are you doing? But with, you know, my inflection, I'm really like, why weren't you home earlier? Gotcha. You know, like, gotcha. Could, or you could be kind of flirty. Yeah. Or like, how are you doing? You know, or you like, can be completely distracted <laughs> and you could be thinking, yeah. I wonder what's on Netflix today. Hey, well, how's it going? You know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it could be yeah. multiple. Right. It could be multiple things. Right. For so what are you, what are you really trying to say, basically? Is okay. The subtext. Okay. Got um, it. And so, and I think that's just what Mark Twain made me think of where, you know, what's underneath your line? What are you trying to say? And... I didn't know where I was going with this, but I think as an actor, it's important to think about that. And that also ties with the theme because I think with, you always have to like know, obviously, like what we've said, like you have to know what we're trying to say with the play and not beating the like audience over. You can't act like the audience is stupid because they're not, you know, I think just elevating your audience and trusting them that they're going to get what you want um, rather than spelling it out for them. I think is probably like my biggest sure. takeaway and just trusting yourself and trusting like your actors and what you've built together. Because like, if you all know if there's a collective agreement of what you're trying to do, I think that usually comes clear very well in my experience. And people can make the choice to be like, yeah, I liked that. Or they'd be like, no, I didn't. But at least you put it out there and you trusted them with it. And if they disagree, maybe that's good. Maybe yeah. that creates a little bit of debate over right. what the theme was supposed to be in the first place. Yeah, and if they're talking about it, like even that, like that's my dream of someone leaving my show and talking about it the rest of the night. Right. That's amazing. Right, you know? right. I, I think of a them. super fun popcorn movie, like a big summer blockbuster. Uh, this one's super old, but any Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. And you walk out of those and you really don't discuss it afterward though. Right. You know, you, yeah. you, you say to your friends, that was awesome. 
Do you want to get a pizza? I want to get a pizza. Right. Do you want to get a pizza? Yeah. So, but but again, like but those movies, Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, all the like, those are pure entertainment basically. But we still see them as like classics, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So they so those those few there were very few that are those like pure entertainment that have like stood the test of time. That it's like just just escapism, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is like merit to like. Yeah, that was, that was a really fun movie, and it was done exceptionally well. You know, of course, you can name, for every one that's like a classic, you've, there's like 50 others that are just like, <laughs> this was, sure. this was absolutely That's terrible. why people well think a particular it. era is so good, I think. Because, sure. for example, people might say, oh, the rock and roll of the 1960s was so good. That's because they didn't live through the 60s. Mm-hmm. I think if you lived through the 60s, you would have heard the yeah. other 95% of the songs that did not survive. Mm. So what do we hear? We turn on the radio, and whenever they play 60s songs, they play the classics, and they leave the other 95% out. Mm-hmm. Right. There was a science fiction writer, Theodore Sturgeon, who said 90% of everything is crap. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hey, that's, that's I guess, a good lesson to kind of remember. <laughs> you know, like, I love 1920s music, but... I'm sure the 90% of it that was not excellent has not survived. Right. Sure. Sure. Right, right, No, I totally agree. Yeah. And, and I just, I, I just love plays that, um, that do have like a really strong, um, underlying message. Um, uh, one of my favorite plays of all time, and we did a podcast on it, it's called The Christians by Lucas Naif, and it has such a strong theme to it. Um, about and it's about the consequences of changing your mind about something and like what how that can um, impact your relationships um, it's changing your mind about something very serious uh, this preacher he changes his mind about he says like hell doesn't exist okay his, so he's changed his mind about that he um, decides that it doesn't it does not after exist. like he used to believe in hell and now he doesn't correct mm-hmm. okay yeah. or or well he admits later he admits like well maybe i never really believed in hell you know oh, so he admits to himself yeah and to others yeah yeah and so it's just the constant how does that shape his relationships and what happens after that mm-hmm. um that's that play has always stuck with me because i was just like that's such a brilliant and beautiful way to talk about something that um not a lot of people talk about you know i mean we live in a world where you you if you if you change your mind about something well you're deemed you're a flip-flopper sorry you're going back and forth all the time right we live in a terrible era for discussion yeah i mm-hmm. think to a great degree yeah and unfortunately i think it's filtered into multiple aspects of life but but sorry i no, i okay. think i interrupted you no that's all right um no that, that, that's all i was gonna say it's just like i just think i, I saw that play live and i was just like oh, like like that, I saw that play. Yeah, I was in college, and that was very, it was a very formative thing for me to see. I was just like, "Whoa, this is a powerful um, something that I can take and talk about later." It's just right. great. And I think when the theme is so strong in the plot and in the story, like you know, then it's nice where it's like, again, the playwright has done their job where it's less of like a stressful thing because if we do our jobs, our jobs right, they're all kind of going to perfectly weave together. That's right. (laughs) So then we can focus more 
on the plot, on the character, on the diction, the way we say the words, you know, and so, and then the theme will come across strongly. Yeah, if yeah. the playwright has taken care of plot and theme, yeah, that frees both of you as directors right. up, or if you're being an actor and an actress, it frees you both up tremendously. Right. exactly. Know? Okay, well, I think that was the perfect lead-in to my next question about elements of theater, and it's on the subject of mystery. And I guess what I mean by mystery is, these are the eternal questions about human nature. You know, for example, are human beings inherently good or are we inherently evil? That kind of thing. And, and I just love stories that will pose these huge questions and then almost force the audience to, to grapple mm -hmm. with those questions. And are you familiar with a story called Young Goodman Brown I, by Hawthorne? Okay. I looked it up before this, but okay. was, before that, I was like, oh, I've never heard of that. Okay, it's a short story. In a nutshell, there's this young guy, maybe 25. His name is Young Goodman Brown, and he lives in Puritan times on the East Coast in North America. And uh, Hawthorne says he's going to go out into the forest on his evil purpose. And then Hawthorne never says what the evil purpose is. But he gets out into the woods, and then he basically witnesses a satanic mass at midnight. Everybody he ever knew and loved is there, like his family, his friends, uh, like the guy who sold him something at the store, the preacher, the teacher, everybody is there. And then he meets his beautiful wife and she's out there too. And her name was Faith. She was going to be staying at home and he was going to go off on his evil purpose and come back to his wife and nobody was supposed to know. And then he was never going to do it again. Well, then she's out there too. Hmm. Then he wakes up. It turns out he was asleep in the forest. But the big question was, okay, and by the way, this was the first, hey, it was a dream story. Yeah, so yeah. It, it was not considered a cheat at the time. Like, yeah. okay, if it's a dream, it's kind of a cheat. Like, <laughs> and then I woke up, you know, right before the shark ate me, you know. <laughs> so it wasn't considered a cheat. Because actually, part of the reason it wasn't considered a cheat, because the real question was, did he actually experience this thing or did he dream it all up in his head? And if he actually experienced it, well, then he comes back to the village and he is avoiding people for the, literally the next 50 years of his life. He has as little interaction with other people as possible because he is thinking they're all hypocrites, they're all liars, mm -hmm. they're all evil, and I'm going to try to be good. And the only way I can do that is to be a hermit essentially. And so, I mean, his dying hour was gloom. That's the last sentence of the oh. story. So is that awful? Yeah. So, so, but it, but it just poses the question, how evil or how good are people? Are we redeemable? Are we irredeemable? I, these, I'm just using this as an example to just ask you this question about, right. about mystery, um, you know, just posing these enormous questions. Um, when you personally both think about creating a mystery or posing a big question, how do you go about doing that? Mm. And do you want to? Yeah, most definitely. Because I think that's where, uh, I think that's a, a lot of where like story lies, right? Like uh, it's a will they or won't they? It's a, you know, like a lot of, um, it, you know, I don't know. Like, I think mystery can be found anywhere rather than just like, oh, it's a murder mystery. I think right, every, right. like every story has like a mystery question to it. And that's why the audience is sitting there for two hours to see what the mystery is and will it be solved and will we know along the way. Um, so I think a fun aspect of that is 
especially when it comes to like comedy, I found that kind of lies a little more. You can kind of tease the audience a little bit more and they can feel like they're in charge. Whereas like in drama, I think, you know, the actors have a little bit more in charge of the material where the audience has kind of taken on the ride. Whereas like a comedy, they may be like, haha, I know they're behind the door. I see them. Oh, and then they slammed into, you know, like it could be that kind of situation. Well, plus we might know in comedy that, wow, those characters are stupid or they're flawed or right. like, I just think about the Simpsons, you know, like uh, Homer's just kind of this drunk fat slob and just kind of dumb and, Marge has got like the beehive hairdo, mm-hmm. you know, which is silly. And, and Lisa can be really sanctimonious. And Bart is just kind of a punk, et cetera. Yeah. So, and, you know, we just laugh at them. Exactly. But we love them. Exactly. We love them. And you so know? I think that's where, like, in comedy, like, the audience knows the mystery and they're, they know exactly what the answer is. And that's what's fun. Because yeah. the, the actors and characters are struggling to figure it out. And it's like a whole you know, farcical experience. But, you know, in like more of a dramatic piece, it might be, oh, we're staying for this because I have to know if they get together. And it's that pull, that push and pull, we're playing with the audience the whole time to see um, Mm. if they do or if they don't, you know, in that situation. But what do you think? Okay, well. I think when trying to pose those those big questions, those like life questions. Yeah, life questions. Yeah. I probably should have just called it that. (laughs) Oh, sure. No, sorry. Um, how do you bring those out? I think that um, if you this is kind of a generic answer, I think, but I think it's right. But if you've done if you've done your um, if you've told the story well, right, the audiences are going to automatically come away with that hmm. one big question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does does God exist? Does our is it is it nature, or are we born this way, or are, is it because of our upbringing? How and much free these, will do yeah, we have? How much free will do we have? Exactly. And I, I think those should those should. I don't know if that's really a director's job to. Well, it's certainly not a director's job to answer those questions mm-hmm. because I don't know if. Because I don't know if the playwright is meaning to answer those questions a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Although I, I feel think, like I if, if you it, really it, wanted to slant things as a director, it you, wouldn't be hard. Could, yeah, you could make could. you could make certain characters far more likable. Right, right. exactly. That's Do what you, I was gonna say. It's like I think the question lies on like uh, making the characters like, well, which character are you rooting for? Because if you're rooting for this one, then you might be leaning towards this edge of the question. Where if you're rooting for this one, it might be the other way and so then I think that's where like kind of the debate comes in mm. once they leave which is fun did Hawthorne and like did, was he just posing the question or do you think he gave an answer I don't feel like he answered the question in the story mm-hmm. um it's been a long time since I've read sure. it but I read it something like seven or eight times at the time because I I taught it a few times as well and so every time I would teach something I would reread it um that's the last sentence his dying hour was gloom mm-hmm. And so he doesn't give us any paragraphs explaining, well, for sure, he saw this black midnight mass, and of course, everybody really is evil, and, and you should be like young and brown. The only way to be is to separate yourself from any, that's the only way to save yourself. He doesn't do anything like that. Or he, on the flip side, he doesn't say, you know, this is just kind of a crazy guy, 
you can just forget about this question. Hey, it has nothing to do with you. Just relax. Hey, Don't there's crazy people. It. You're not one of them. Mm. You know, he doesn't do that either. Yeah. So he, he poses this horrible question. Uh, just how evil are we? And then I think he wants us to sit with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think it's stronger to leave the audience wondering rather than answering it for them. Kind of like we were talking about with the theme, like, I, I don't want to smack them over the head with something. I want them to come away being like, huh, I've never thought about that before. That would be... You know, I, I will say there would be one big disadvantage to smacking the audience over the head. <laughs> they will walk out and instead of talking about the play or the actors or the plot, they will be talking about you, the director. <laughs> yeah. They'll be like, wow, look at the heavy hand mm. yeah, of exactly. King Kong, the director, who right. just had to come in yeah. and grab the airplane and throw it across the... And that's right. when you know you've done a terrible job because a perfect job of a director, if you've done your job well, then you can just kind of like, you know, get out of there and no one even notices because they're like, wow, that was so smooth and that right. was such a great show and I'm only talking about this. And right. then... That's what we always feel like when we're directing. Um, it's so funny because no one will really compliment you, which is so interesting because it's yeah. usually like about the actors or like the designers. And like, it's amazing. And I kind of love watching it because then it's like, you know, you put so much and then you just kind of get to let it go. You and it's out of your hands. And you get to watch all of them kind of do perform it and experience it. And so okay. I think that's kind of magic. Okay. So you're kind of like an umpire or a referee in a sport. That ideally, nobody knows the umpire is there. You know, if the umpire inserts himself into the game and creates balls when there weren't balls, but Mm -hmm. those were strikes, but, you know, I mean, he can obviously, like, put his thumb on the scale and decide who wins and who loses. Right. Right. So you said something. You said people may never give you a compliment Mm -hmm. if you're doing your job well. Now I'm very curious. When do people give (laughs) directors compliments? Or do you just have to live your entire life with no as compliments? A, as a theater, as a high school theater teacher, parents give me compliments when I've given their child a chance. Okay. Yeah. That's the my It's most, more of that. Yeah. It's it's not it's Artistic. not like it's, yeah yeah. But I don't have a lot of theater critics see my shows. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, no, uh, I think you see some guy in the no, back with the French hat and the whatever, yeah, then you know you're yeah, in trouble. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're gonna be at the front page of the Times tomorrow. Yeah. Um, no, I think, uh, like, I have been, like, complimented before, but it's by people who know to do that, who are more experienced, like, theater makers. I just think, like, the greatest compliment I ever received as a director is with Gruesome Playground Injuries. One of my professors came up to me, he's like, what are you getting your master's in directing? You know, like, and it was just like, huh. <laughs> um, but he, it was an inadvertent compliment. Yeah. <laughs> but those yeah. are the best kinds. Exactly. They are. They're the best yeah. kind. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was a parent who came up to me after the Art Fall play, and he, and he was like, he was like, that's the best show I've ever seen. And I was like, all right. Well, I don't know about that. That sounds <laughs> extreme. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm just like, I don't think that really means anything. It's very nice, but, so, but, um, but it must not have seen a lot of theater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that good. I don't know. It was fun. So, no, it was good. It was yeah. Good. But yeah, so I think it's, it's just, it's an interesting concept though, because you work so hard and then it's like, oh. But you're working so hard so that others can shine and that you can all kind of shine together. And seeing them do that, you feel it. You feel like a proud parent. I think would feel. I'm not a parent, but like I'm sure that's how you would feel. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I love it. Okay. 
Well, we are approaching the end of the interview. I have two last questions. Uh, here's the first of two. What should I have asked? Or what do people not know about theater that you would like to get across to people? Hmm. Go out and see plays. I think it's, I, I, I don't know. I, other than, yeah, like just experience it. If you have, if you maybe haven't seen a show, like a show since like high school or whatever, if, if you're in the Kansas City area, there's tons of great theater out there, and they're all coming back from after emerging from the COVID cocoon, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and just get out there and see it um, and experience it for yourself. Um, and that's what I would say. Yeah. And I think, well, and off of that, I think um, it's very tempting to make theater your whole life or make acting your whole life or performing. It can be a very, like, uh, you know. All you consuming. Have, yes, all consuming. You can wind up like Clint Eastwood. Yes. Where you're 90 and you're. <laughs> and you're still doing Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I mean, um, he's directing, he's acting. Right. Oh it's gosh. insane. And so I think uh, what I would say is don't. I would suggest not to do that and try to be, um, not, not to be Clint Eastwood because he's an icon, but I mean, try to be a well-rounded person because that's where I think you'll be a stronger, uh, theater maker, filmmaker is if you are seeing art in other people and other things and things you didn't know that you would like and you do and going out and doing that and getting away from it all for a little bit so that when you come back to it, you're stronger and you're more self-assured because you've experienced life rather than constantly being in the world of theater, then that's all you know how to do. I only know kind of how to act rather than, you know, acting like this person I met the other day and we had a great conversation and now I can inhibit them, you know? In, engage with life more, right, I guess. Exactly. Is kind of, otherwise, if I'm just in the theater all the time, maybe I'll just write plays about being in plays. Yeah. <laughs> and then pretty soon I'll be writing plays about being in plays, about being in plays, exactly. about being in plays. That was always a temptation in our playwriting classes. It was so hard to not do that, which is because, you know, yeah. when you're in school, it's so hard to get out. There's, there's a few early Stephen King novels. I, I read, I don't know, 12 or 13 Stephen King novels before I was 30. And I don't know if I've read any since then, but he had about three in a row where the main character was a writer. And I yeah. thought, yeah. Hmm, that's really interesting. <laughs> interesting, Stephen yeah. King. I yeah. see you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. yeah. So, okay, no, I, I just, I love both of your pieces of advice there. Okay, here's my last question. Um, let's just fast forward your life, 15 years from today, and you are taking a stroll together. Maybe your kids are, you know, ambling along with you, mm-hmm. and you just, for whatever reason, you start looking back in the last 15 years. And you just say, those were wonderful. So I guess my question is, why were those last 15 <laughs> years wonderful? My goodness. Um, I love it. I, I think, it, I think uh, because we, we uh, kept life interesting. We, we, we made, hmm, to, 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 make, to take some directing advice here, it's like we, we, you got to make strong choices. <laughs> um, that's what I say to my kids all the time. Make strong choices. Make make them. Uh, don't don't let yourself get pigeonholed. We didn't let ourselves get pigeonholed into our roles, mm-hmm. basically. And I think uh, just expanding off of that, uh, I always, you know, just when thinking about becoming a parent, or I never 
want to be the type of parent where it's like all about my kid. I don't think I would be very good at that. Like I think I would drive myself crazy. This is the type of person I am. Um, so I would always would want to kind of keep going with theater and still do what I'm passionate about and fill my cup both ways, you know? And I think that's, something that we hold really important in our relationship we know that the other has creative passions and that we want to still pursue them regardless I mean like with the family's help in mind and keeping that being like the core of everything but I you know my parents both grew up there both working like very hard and like I admired that so much like I you know, I, my mom would sell jewelry at these like farmers markets and I would just go and I would attend the fair and she was working and so it's just and I loved that because I got to see like my mom in action in, in the community and building with that around her. And so I, I think I would want to do something like that. But in like the theater world, it's kind of a dream of ours to produce a show, I think, professionally. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I think if we did like summer kind of production company, that would be really awesome. And just to constantly keep creating because that's, I mean, that's what we love to do. And it fulfills us both. So, yeah. Well, I... Totally hope that you will do it. <laughs> Dream. Yeah. Yeah. We'll I see. can't wait to see the shows that you produced yeah. and to listen to more episodes of The Playwrights. Oh, thank Available you. on Apple and Spotify. Yes. <laughs> and anywhere. Okay, your thank you so, so much for interviewing us. We yeah, had such a good awesome. time. So it was an absolute joy. Oh, my gosh. Let's do it again sometime. Let's do With it. love. Okay. <laughs> And thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. I will be back in a few days.